If you're able, you remain standing and turn to Psalm 12. Return to our series on 1 John, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Psalm 12, reading the whole psalm. This is the word of our Lord. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own who is the Lord over us. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will rise up, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you speak to us as we look into it. We pray that our eyes will be open to see your glory. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you look at the title of the, of the psalm, it doesn't tell us anything about the occasion. It's, it's not a psalm that's attached to any particular time in the life of David. He just tells us uh, what instrument is supposed to be used and uh, what kind of song it is. It's a psalm. It's really an expression in general of the experience of the godly person. In Psalm 12, I think we can find all of our experiences in everyday life in it. He, the psalmist here goes from despair and depression generated by the overwhelming presence of the wicked and the wickedness and by the seeming absence of the godly in society to trust in God and trust in His promise to, and to a biblically informed view of the world. And we often find ourselves in that cycle where we get, we get despair, we fall into despair, we get depressed because of everything that's going on around us. Then we start thinking about the Lord, we think about what He's done for us, and without any change in the circumstances around us, we're able to overcome that despair, overcome that depression, and experience the joy of the Lord when we change our thinking and our acting. Did you notice as you're reading that verse 1 and verse 8 are almost identical? Meaning, there's no difference in the circumstances of the psalmist when you look at the beginning at the end of the psalm. The wicked are still around. Wicked is still uh, uh, is very present around him. And yet, he's changed his attitude. We can see the progression of faith presented here by David as the experience of the godly. 
starts in despair in verse 1, then he prays in verses 1 through 3, then he utters a curse upon the wicked in verses 3 and 4, then God reminds him of his promises in verse 5, then confidence in the word of God comes up in his heart in verses 6 and 7, and the psalm ends with an accurate understanding of the world in verse 8. In all of this, there are no changes in the circumstances of the godly, only in his thinking and in his actions. It was right thinking and acting that changed the godly person's perspective. And we often get it backwards in our lives. We get depressed because of the circumstances around us or the circumstances in our lives. Then we wait till things around us change in order to, for us to come out of that depression, come out of that despair. We, we, we tether our joy to everything else that's going on around us. And then we wait for those things to change in order to drag us out of whatever it is that we are in. We see that and we do that in our marriages. We know what is right, but we think that there must be something else. And, and just thinking and acting in a certain way to one another cannot be it. Or can it? Just acting the way that God calls us to act and to think can't be the solution. There must be something else out there. And until that comes up, I'm going to be in despair, in, de in depression, and I'm going to be miserable. There must be a secret. Until I find this elusive secret, I'll have a depressing marriage. We may not formulate those thoughts exactly like that, but we often act in that way. And we do that in life in general. We get depressed because of the blank in the sentence, if only blank, I would be happy. And the psalmist says that happiness, that joy, is, in, is not in that, is in, in, a, in an accurate view of God and His Word and of the world around us. And we all have experienced that. There have been times in our lives where things really stink in our lives. And yet we experience the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord in our hearts. And there are times where things seem to be doing very well, going very well, and yet we have a sense of despair in our hearts that we can't really explain why it's there. And all has to do with how we are relating to the Lord and to His Word. There are four parts in this psalm, and that's what we're going to use to look at it. The first part is a prayer of deliverance in verses 1 through 4. And the first thing the psalmist does is to turn to the only one who can help him. You see how the psalm begins? Help, Lord. That's, that's a prayer that we all can pray. No matter when it is in our lives, no matter what's going on, help, Lord. And this has to be the first and foremost thing in our lives when we deal with every issue. Help, Lord. We must go to God because it, He is the source of all help. And He will help us as evidence in verse 5. When the psalmist prayed to him in verse 5, God says, I will stand for the godly. That's the testimony of the psalmist throughout the psalms. For example, in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, 
what? A very present help in trouble, therefore, we will not fear. In this particular instance, the psalmist turns to the Lord because her, his circumstances indicate that the godly and the faithful are disappearing. In verse 1, again, it says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, I think the psalmist is using hyperbolic language, which is a valid way to express poetic thought. It doesn't mean that literally there's no godly, there's no faithful in there and in, in, around him. But the presence of the wicked people around him and the lack of relevance or impact of the godly on society made it seem like there were no godly people in that society. You ever felt that way? That you're the only one left? That there's nothing there? That... Uh, everything is so wicked and, and, and it feels like no, no, no matter what you do, there's no hope that you're just um, beating your head against a, a wall and so on. That's the experience of the psalmist. And often that happens because godly people keep their mouths shut. I find that myself. I was in Brazil, with, uh, spent just one night with unbelieving friends from high school. And um, flaming liberals and all kinds of, of, of false ideas. And I often found myself keeping my mouth shut instead of, you know, saying something. And we find ourselves doing that quite often, I think. Uh, I think we, we say, oh, we need to pick our battles. That's gold word for never fighting a battle. And often it feels like everything is going to hell in a handbasket because we are quiet. Because we do not stand for righteousness. And, and the wicked is loud. Think about the LGBTQ, the transgenderism in the United States it, it amounts to less than 1% of total population. And you'd think there would be 99% of the population, by the way, that is loudly spoken out there. And yet, you and I, who supposedly account for 33% of the American population, are quiet. So it feels like, it seems like, everything is going to hell in the handbasket. Because you and I have decided that we don't have to speak up for the Lord. So the psalmist says, help, Lord. And notice that the attitude of the psalmist is very different from that of Elijah. Remember Elijah in, in 1 Kings 18 and 19? You have the great victory of the prophets of Baal. All the 400 prophets of Baal are, are killed. Uh, he, uh, he pronounces a, 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 a drought on the land that comes to pass. And then Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And Elijah says, oh no. And he starts running. And he runs and runs and starts moping. And he says, I'm the only one left. Nobody understands me. Uh, God asking me to do all these things, and yet there's nothing to be done. Uh, nothing I can do because I'm the only one left. Mm, poor me. Remember that? They found him. And meanwhile, God is feeding him, giving him what to drink, giving him rest. And he's like, well, his blip is like almost reaching his belly button. <laughs> so hard he's pouting there. And God comes to him and speaks to him. You know what God says? 
He doesn't say, now, now, Elijah, it's going to be okay. Let me give you a hug. No. He says, um, you need to go to Israel and anoint uh, um, whoever the king is going to be. It's not Elihu, because that's the kid in Job. Ehud. Whoever it is, is going to be the king in Israel. Go do that. Then you're going to go to Syria and going to talk to the king there. Then you're going to get there. And, and what did so? What did God tell Elijah to how he was going to get out of his funk? Just go do what I told you to do. Oh, by the way, Elijah, there's at least seven thousand in the neighborhood that have not bowed their knees to Baal. But that's not the attitude you find in the psalm. The psalmist found himself in a, in a similar situation where it seemed like the godly had perished. Persecution has come into him. What does he do? Does he run away from God and complain like Elijah did? No, he does the opposite. He runs to God. Because he's the only one that can do something about that. Help me. God, the psalmist says. The psalmist sees the same things going on, but instead of running away and blaming God, he turns to God knowing that he is the only one that can fix things. And the evidence that the psalmist brings before God that the godly has disappeared is the use of the tongue by those around him. Look at verse 2. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak so the evidence that uh, the God is disappearing is that the speech of society is such that displeases God. There's no one speaking what is right. There's no one saying the things that God says in society. That's what the, the struggle that the psalmist is happen, happening. And notice that the assumption of the psalmist is, and of the scriptures in general is that this way of using the tongue in verse 2 is a characteristic of the wicked. And the implication then is that the godly should not use it, use her tongue, use his tongue in this way. Now, it's well known by us that when the Bible talks about the tongue, it's not talking about this muscle. Right? It's talking about our speech that reflects the heart. The, the psalmist says as much in verse 2. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and a double heart they speak the particular sinful speech pattern the psalmist is referring to here is the perversion and twisting of the truth, otherwise known as lying. And you say, no one is standing up to speak the truth. So society, culture is saying what is a lie very loudly, and those who know the truth are staying quiet. It's totally foreign to our experience, isn't it? There's no way we can relate to that in where we live today, is there? How many times during this uh, last couple of years with all that's being said, have we stayed quiet? Just because it's embarrassing to be always the odd man out? It's embarrassing to be the one that uh, uh, is told that they don't believe in science, Right? Every time somebody says that, you know, the science, I only think of um, Skeleto on Natural Libre. Is that his name? I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Uh, it's such a stupid statement as if they can really separate God and science. 
But that's the problem. Society in, in Psalm 12 is just speaking lies. And they're speaking loudly. And everybody's being, is accepting that as the norm. And the psalmist says, Lord, help me. For there's only lies being spoken. And the, the, the godly is quiet. So it appears like there is no godly, only wicked. And he prays that God would help him. And here, the, the ungodly is portrayed as wanting to gain power by flattery, by deception, by clever schemes. See that in verses 2 and 4. And the source of their deceits clearly pointed out in verse 2, and that is the heart. The ungodly is one thing in their heart, but something else in their speech. They're double-hearted, as the psalmist calls. And there's another way to say that they are hypocrites. And the Bible says that the godly, that's you and I, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot be that. In James chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, James says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things are not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. You and I are springs. And what do springs do? They spring water, right? You put a plug, it will come out. No matter what. What is it that's going to come out? Truth or not? The people of the psalmist day, the godly, were not allowing truth to come out. And our catechism says that when we don't speak the truth, guess what we're doing? We're lying. It doesn't matter that we're not saying words. If you're not putting forth the truth... We are lying. And when we let cultural norms go unchallenged as the church of Jesus Christ, we are lying. And when we buy into them, we are lying. Lying is a characteristic of the ungodly, not of the godly. And God hates the liar. The liar and the proud are the same person. In Proverbs 6, verses 6 and 19, it says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are in abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So what do we do? Well, we're going to think God's thoughts after Him. We are able to discipline our thought life. I don't know if you understand that. That we are able to discipline our thought life. In Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, the apostle says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. 
So we think God's thoughts after him. In a society, in a culture where it's all about lies, we think what is correct. We think what's right. We think God's thoughts after him. But also we act the way God calls us to act. Keep your finger or something there in, in, in Psalm 12 and turn to Ephesians 4 for a second. Look at verse, starting verse 25. And this is such a well-known passage that we might overlook it. But let's not. Let's, let's really hear what Paul says here all the way to the end of the chapter. We act the way God calls us. We think God's thoughts after him and we act in a society that is rejoicing in lies. We act the way that God calls us to act. And the first thing he says there in verse 25 is, put away, putting away lying... Let each one speak of you. Speak. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice that the godly doesn't just not speak lies. To be the to be a godly person, you're also speaking truth. And he continues: Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We live in an angry society. Right? Everybody's angry. And the thing is that us in the church, we're acting angry as well. We're letting anger be the thing that characterizes us. And that can be the case because every time we do that, we're actually allowing Satan to get hold of our hearts. And he continues in verse 28. Let him who stole and steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. As we speak truth to where we are in our society, we do that by being honest in everything that we do, but not stealing. And we think, oh, I don't steal. I, I, I've never pocketed anything. But we can steal by being lazy. We can steal by not using the time at work the way that we're supposed to. We can steal by not being productive. All these things are ways that we are speaking either truths or lies to the culture that we are in. And he continues in verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. I think that God is not big into small talk. I think He wants our words to be intentional and to be purposeful and to accomplish something. And that something is the good of everyone who's around us. That's what He calls us to do. And that's how we are to interact with society. But we are, we are proud people. We don't want to be thought less of. We don't want to be disdained. So when it's good to say something, look, you're, you've bought into a lie in a lot of ways the last couple of years. When it's good for somebody to hear that, we tend to roll back because we're afraid of how society is going to see us. Right? Because they're going to think us of a, of a, a Fox News nut. And that's our fault, too. 
Because we as the Church of Jesus Christ made ourselves into Fox News people. And that is also not a good thing. Let no corrupt, verse 29, no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Necessary is not mandatory, but needed. People around us need to be edified. And we are the agents of their edification. We are the agents that God is using to build up those people around us. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve? By doing exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from your from you with all malice. And here in this verse, Paul grabs a bunch of words that could be synonyms that are just a little bit different than one another and match them all together so that there's no room in our thinking from any thought of uh, thought that bitterness is okay in the church of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we speak the truth of society that we're in is by having relationships in the church of Jesus Christ that's marked by forgiveness, reconciliation, and lack of bitterness. So right now, if you are bitter towards somebody, you are a liar. You're not acting as a child of God. Well, but you don't know what they did to me. Do you know what you did to Christ? And yet he forgave you. If you're truly forgiven, then bitterness cannot be present in your life. If, you want, if you, we want godliness to reign supreme around us, it's not just because of the bad people out there. It's because of the things that are also in our hearts that need to be eliminated. In verse 32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It's so difficult to interact with a society that we are in, in kindness. It's hard to not get your blood pressure up. It's hard to not want to just yell, how dumb can you be, in some of the things that are being said. It's hard to not just start screaming at people, which I haven't, I don't think, at to this point. But inside, it's like, you know, Sometimes I feel like, have you ever seen the Super Bowl commercial that of, I think it was Tide, the guy had a spot on his shirt and he went to an interview and all the interviewer could see was the little spot screaming at him when the guy was talking about himself. That's how sometimes I feel like my heart is when dealing with some of these things. And yet Paul tells us, if we truly want to receive the help of God, that looks like interacting with this wicked culture that we're in with a tender heart, tender heart. Tender heart and thick skin, right? That's what we need to have in this culture. And notice back in Psalm 112, the psalmist's attitude toward the sins that is going on around in society. May the Lord, verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips our own, who is Lord over us. In essence, he's saying, Lord, you take vengeance. I will be tenderhearted. I will speak the truth. I will minister. I will build up. I will say what needs to be said. You vindicate me. I will, I will, I will love and you vindicate. That's very much like Romans 12. I will love 
you vindicate, Lord. And we have to have the same attitude. And the Lord answers the prayers of the godly. Look at verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Just the fact that verse 5 is here reassures us once again that God answers the prayers of his people. And you might say, you know, I've been praying for this or that and I haven't seen any answer. And my answer to that is that while we may think that God hasn't answered our prayers, He may have answered our prayer by doing what is best for us and brings the greatest glory to Himself. One of the most shocking, difficult, not difficult to understand, but difficult to accept passages is in Hebrews chapter 2, where the, where there the Holy Spirit says that the Father delivered the Son, that the, the Son prayed to the Father, and the Father delivered the Son from death through death. It is by dying that God answered the prayer of Jesus not to die, because then on the third day He came back to life. And all our prayers for peace and for harmony and so on will be answered. But it may be till we may have to wait till the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Lord is going to continue to be faithful to His promises, and His promises is to keep the godly in His hands. It is to never leave Him and never forsake Him. Not a promise of peace, but a promise of presence with them. And as the psalmist realizes that, he goes from despair into joy. Look at verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. All of a sudden, the psalmist realizes, oh, your word is precious. You tell me that you're keeping me. You tell me that you're working in me. Your word is being proven to be right. Seven times purified, perfectly perfect. If that can be said. Perfectly purified. Seven times. And I can trust in that. Thank you, Lord, for pointing me back to your word. So we can, I can see who you are. And what you're doing. And your attributes there. Presence. And knowing that the word of God is trustworthy. The psalmist regains his joy. Because God says he will keep his people. In verse 7, the word them refers back to godly. And the idea is that. The wicked may turn this world upside down, but God will protect His own. Even if that protection happens through death. Because the resurrection is coming. The wicked will be around, but so will be God. Look at verse 8. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. As long as vileness is exalted, as long as vileness is honored... Among men, the wicked will be around. But now the psalmist doesn't despair because he think, his thinking is right and he knows that God is also around. Same reality of verse 1, and yet now he's thinking rightly about who God is and what God is doing. 
So we see a progression in the thinking of the psalmist. He's, he goes from depression to joy without any changes in his circumstances. The only thing that changed was how he thought about God. You know, this is true for us as well. I would like to suggest to you that having the joy of the Lord has much more to do with our thinking about God than anything that goes on around us. The joy of the Lord has more to do with our interaction with our Savior than the circumstances of our lives. Think again with me of Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are God of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And what's the result of that? The things which you learn and receive and learn and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Meditate on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let me ask you this. What is truer? What is nobler? What is more just, purer, lovelier, and of good report than the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Peace and joy go hand in hand. They are both found in Jesus Christ, not in our circumstances. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for the experience of the psalmist, our experience. We thank you that we can read about the things that we deal with in your word, even though this is written 3,000 years ago. Father, we pray that we would seek help from you. And that in a society, in a culture where lies prevail, that we would be willing to speak the truth in love for the edification of all that are around us. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.